Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corp, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. Similarly to last time, we're continuing to focus on comorbidities in diabetes. Today's topic is heart failure or HF. James and I will review relevant guideline information and recent trial data, and then we'll join Dr. Darren Maguire for his advice on how to manage both diabetes and heart failure when both present together. As usual, all references discussed during the session are available in the episode notes. In addition, if you're already thoroughly familiar with this topic, do feel free to skip ahead to the interview at the five minute mark. Last episode, we discussed the management of chronic kidney disease, which features bidirectional risk for developing heart failure, including inflammatory mechanisms, stress-mediated neurohormonal responses, altered hemodynamic status, and metabolic changes. The latter of these is why both conditions are of interest in diabetes. According to Walner and colleagues, diabetes is associated with a two- to five-fold increased risk for developing heart failure compared to match controls. An important aspect to bear in mind with heart failure is that it is not one uniform disease. Instead, the disease is classified depending on the mechanisms behind reduced cardiac output, namely whether it is due to systolic or diastolic dysfunction. This is best summarised by discussing the ejection fraction, or EF. Where heart failure is caused by left ventricular dysfunction during systole, the heart is unable to pump out the full volume of blood that enters it creating a state called heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HF-REF. Conversely, if the heart failure is caused by abnormalities in ventricular relaxation during diastole, or passive ventricular compliance, a smaller volume of blood enters the heart, but the full amount leaves. This is instead heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HF-PEF. Summaries of both forms of heart failure are provided in our reference list, under Gazewood and Turner, and Murphy and colleagues, respectively. This differentiation is important, as it affects the pharmacological management of the heart failure. Many of the treatments that are effective in managing HF-REF are not effective in managing HF-PEF, as described in the ESC guidelines. They say no treatment has yet been shown convincingly to reduce morbidity or mortality in patients with HF-PEF although they do note that symptomatic management, for example diuretics to improve congestion, can improve signs and symptoms of heart failure. In HF-REF, pharmacological management aims to improve symptoms and left ventricular ejection fraction. ESC guidelines recommend initiating ACE inhibitors and beta blockers to improve symptoms and reduce the risk of hospitalisation for heart failure, or HHF, and death. For those who remain symptomatic despite treatment with both medications, these guidelines recommend the addition of a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. It's important to recognise, however, that these ESC guidelines were published in 2016. Since then, there have been a number of new developments. For example, the guanylate cyclase stimulator varisaguat has demonstrated a 10% reduction in cardiovascular death, or HHF, versus placebo in the recent Victoria study which may contribute to a future approval. A major area of interest, however, has been regarding SGLT2 inhibitors. These agents have demonstrated protective effects among people with type 2 diabetes and heart failure, reducing cardiovascular death and HHF in cardiovascular outcome trials. 
This led to ADA and EASD guidelines recommending the addition of an SGLT2 inhibitor wherever a patient has established heart failure. Beyond diabetes, there is growing evidence that the protective effects of the SGLT2 inhibitor class extend to those without diabetes. Two major cardiovascular outcome trials to date support this theory. DAPA-HF, which was published last year, and Emperor Reduced, published recently. Both trials compared the effects of an SGLT2 inhibitor, dapagliflozin and empagliflozin respectively, versus placebo, both in addition to a recommended therapy in people with class 2, 3, or 4 heart failure with reduced ejection fraction of 40% or below. Both trials observed a statistically significant 35% reduction in their primary composite outcome in the SGLT2 group compared to the placebo group leading the authors to conclude in both trials that the risk of worsening heart failure or death from cardiovascular causes was lower among people who received an SGLT2 inhibitor versus placebo, regardless of the presence or absence of diabetes. So then, what does this mean for the management of heart failure and diabetes, both together and separately? Today we're joined to discuss this issue by Dr. Darren Maguire, Distinguished Teaching Professor of Medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Maguire, and welcome to the podcast. So first question, considering the data supporting SGLT2 inhibitors in treating heart failure without diabetes, where do you think this class should fit into the treatment pathway for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? So I, I think this class of medications have squarely fallen into the level 1A indicated therapies for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, adding now to the RAS inhibitors, the beta blockers, and the mineralocorticoid antagonists. And so independent of the presence or absence of diabetes, patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction who have an EGFR at least greater than 20 or greater than 30, depending on the trial data that you look at. Um, these are clearly evidence-based heart failure with reduced ejection fraction medications, and they should be initiated completely independent of diabetes status and in addition to or instead of any of the other three classes of medications. Thank you. And then secondly, these studies have looked at heart failure with reduced ejection fraction in the presence and absence of diabetes. But what about with preserved ejection fraction? Is this condition also associated with diabetes? And what management approaches are available? Yeah, so heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is a much different uh, disease state. We've had very little success over the years in establishing effective therapies for this condition. You know, so what we're left with in 2020 is basically management of blood pressure, management of lifestyle, obesity, and physical activity, controlling atrial fibrillation. And we really don't have any level 1A indicated therapies specifically for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And diabetes is indeed associated with HEF-PEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, somewhere between 60 and 70% of heart failure in patients with diabetes is HEF-PEF. And so um, we're really at a loss of how to treat these patients beyond just treating the risk factors associated with HEF-PEF. Now, the SGLT2 inhibitors have been proven effective in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but the trials are still ongoing for HEF-PEF. Um, you know, the, the failure of so many therapies in this condition gives me some skepticism that we'll make 
make headway with the SGLT2 inhibitors, but um, but it's cautious optimism. I'm hoping that we have finally found a medication that will materially improve the outcomes. Maybe not mortality, although that would be ideal, but certainly if we can show that we reduce the morbidity burden by reducing hospitalization for heart failure in this uh, very large patient population um, with preserved ejection fraction heart failure. So um, there's a trial ongoing with empagliflozin and a trial ongoing with dapagliflozin testing this hypothesis specifically in HEF-PEF populations. And like the HEF-REF trials, they're being studied with or without diabetes. Thank you. And then pulling everything together, what advice do you have for our listeners in managing heart failure and diabetes where both co-occur? Beyond offering an SGLT2 inhibitor, what else can be done to effectively manage both conditions at the same time? Yeah, the, the confluence of diabetes and heart failure is, is a real uh, situation that we manage every single day in our clinical practice. And, and managing, them, managing them simultaneously does impact decisions of care and prescriptions, one, one condition for the other. So for example, there are antihyperglycemic medications that have impact on heart failure, and some have favorable impact like the SGLT2 inhibitors, but some have deleterious effects like the DPP-4 inhibitor, saxagliptin, increases risk for heart failure. The thiazolidinedione medications increase risk for heart failure. The GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, the data are a little less clear. It looks like probably they're at least safe, if not slightly incrementally beneficial for patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease at risk for heart failure. But two dedicated randomized trials with liraglutide, the once daily GLP-1 receptor agonist against placebo in patients with or without diabetes with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, two relatively small trials, but each yielded an adverse first safety signal with the GLP-1 receptor agonist. So we're a little uncertain about the safety in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, at least in an advanced stage with New York Heart Association class two or beyond. Um, for HEF-PEF patients, probably um, at least safe and maybe incrementally beneficial, if for no other reason, the GLP-1 receptor agonist induced weight loss, which has been associated with reduced risk for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and also atrial fibrillation that goes with it. Um, in the treatment of heart failure, in the, the presence of diabetes should amplify the imperative to get a RAS inhibitor on board, so an ACE inhibitor, an ARB, or ideally, if a patient can get it, an ARNI, um, Secubitril Valsartan. Um, it may con contribute to the decision of which beta blocker to use. Carvedilol is slightly more metabolically um, beneficial than uh, metoprolol, for example. Um, Mineralocorticoid antagonists have been uh, shown to be incrementally beneficial in the presence of diabetes, at least in the post-myocardial infarction state. And so, so each condition contributes to decision-making for the other, um, but it's important to manage them both as aggressively as one can. And again, now that we have SGLT2 inhibitors that have a direct effect on heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, those should be the preferential drugs uh, to use from the antihyperglycemic uh, arsenal. And you mentioned that these agents should be given at the same time or in preference to the other three treatments for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Should the sequencing of these be dictated by any patient level factors, or is it a case of using what clinicians are familiar with? Yeah, so, that, so now that we have effectively four level 1A indicated therapies for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, a big question 
is what order or what sequence should we start and titrate these medications? I think to be honest to the data, the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction trials with the SGLT2 inhibitors, that's DAPA-HF with dapagliflozin and Emperor reduced with empagliflozin. Those were each conducted in a patient population very, very well treated with the three other classes of medications. And so true to the data, the SGLT2 inhibitors probably should be started after the other three have been started and titrated. Now, we don't know if that's the right sequence, but we also don't know the other three medications what's the right sequence. We don't know if we should start MRAs first or beta blockers first or RAS inhibitors first. We tend to start the RAS inhibitors and then the beta blockers and and the MRAs because that's the sequence chronologically that the drug classes were developed and proven effective, each being added to the former. And so um, now that we have four therapies, there's some conversation going on as should we do large pragmatic randomized trials, randomizing patients to sequence of initiation, and I think that would be very useful. But at the end of the day, I think it's probably much less important what order these drugs are used. It's just to use as many of them titrated to the target doses as much as a patient will tolerate. We see a lot of patients not treated with any of these drugs. We see a lot of patients treated with very low doses, not getting to goal-directed medical therapy. So it's important to consider these drugs at each encounter with the HEF-REF patients and uh, consider uh, adding or titrating until you get to target doses of all four. You know, and there are certain patient characteristics that may drive you to one versus the other. I think if a patient has type 2 diabetes, you'll probably be reaching for the SGLT2 inhibitor earlier than you would otherwise. Not, Not saying that that's the right answer, but saying that that's something about the patient that may inform the decision. Um, I think a patient with a low resting heart rate and may not tolerate a beta blocker or is on only on a low dose of a beta blocker, the addition of any of the other three, including the SGLT2 inhibitors, would be reasonable. And then we can't, uh, we can't have this conversation without talking about cost. And these SGLT2 inhibitors are quite expensive. And so um, if the patient has resources and is able to get them affordably, they're reasonable to start earlier. But there are some patients that won't be able to afford them or or get access to them. And so the other three classes each have generic uh, generic representatives. And so and so cost really does come into the equation, at least uh, in, in the States. Thank you. And do you have any final advice to cardiologists and endocrinologists listening today on how to manage comorbid patients effectively as members of the multidisciplinary team? Now that these uh, these uh, what formerly were known as diabetes medications, now that they have cardiovascular indications, the imperative is ever ever mounting that we cardiologists have to engage in the care of these patients, the use of these medications, and we need to do so in a team uh, team manner. We have been routinely in our cardiology clinic have been routinely using SGLT2 inhibitors for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease now for four years. And when we start one of these medications in a patient with type two diabetes and ASCVD, we send a personal note through the electronic medical record to the care providers who are managing the diabetes to say that we saw our mutual patient today in clinic. We started an SGLT2 inhibitor for its cardiovascular benefit, and we will continue to defer to you for the management of hyperglycemia. And that sends a message to the care provider who's managing the diabetes that we're not trying to get into their business. We're not trying to offend them and, 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 
and change their management, but we're also co-managing the patient in a team um, spirit and that we want these, these patients to get the cardiovascular benefit of these medications. And when I say these medications, I mean the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists. So that's for the patient population with ASCVD. And now more recently, especially after the Emperor Reduced trial has confirmed the findings from the DAPA heart failure trial that we now have two SGLT2 inhibitors that independent of diabetes are heart failure medications. And so similarly, we're, uh, we're using them broadly in that, in that condition. And we're sending notes through the chart to make it clear with the co-providers that, that this is a, a team approach and we're um, using these medications as cardiovascular medications, but also making it clear that the glucose management will be continued to be, the glucose will continue to be managed by either the primary care physician or for the patients who have engagement with the endocrinologist, endocrinologist or diabetologist. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarise, heart failure is a common comorbidity of diabetes, particularly in patients with a long duration of diabetes. Heart failure is typically differentiated based on ejection fraction, with the majority of studies and treatments focusing on HF-REF. SGLT2 inhibitors have demonstrated improved outcomes versus placebo in HF-REF in people with and without diabetes, but trials are still ongoing to determine its effect in HF-PEF. Thanks for joining us. As a reminder, all references discussed in the episode are available in the description, and we'd love to hear from you on social media. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favorite app or recommending us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu, including packages for small group learning and animated storyboards. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to joining you again in the last episode of the season which will look at putting all of this into practice with a discussion of complex cases.